0: Welcome to Include NYC's podcast. I'm Jean Mizutani here with Miguel Salazar coming to you from Brooklyn, New York. Your knowledge of special education isn't complete unless you know the story of Jose P. The case known as Jose P versus AMBOK is specific to New York City and New York City only. We're in luck because joining us today is New York City's premier special education advocate, Miguel Salazar. I had the honor and privilege of working with Miguel from 1999 to 2011 at Include NYC, which was then known as Resources for Children with Special Needs. That 12-year period represented only half of Miguel's tenure there. When I tell you that he has done everything, it is no exaggeration. In addition to serving as our veteran program director for public education, he is a professor, lecturer, former hearing officer for the New York City Department of Education and an independent parent advocate. While not an attorney, Miguel is so accomplished representing parents at impartial hearings that he is often mistaken for one. Truthfully, most attorneys can only dream of matching his success rate. Now nearing the tail end of his career in New York City, Miguel and family will soon relocate to Texas and we are recording amidst packing crates and boxes, Miguel, thank you so much for finding time for us. This is an amazing topic that too few people know of. Well, thank you very much for the uh, introduction. I won't believe it myself. Well, I believe it because I know your capabilities. That's why you're our guest today. Can you start off by giving us a little background?
1: Um, In reference to the idea, uh, one of the things that many people don't understand uh, or forget is that there is no federal constitutional right to an education in this country. It's a state state right, and because every state is its own republic and has its own education system, uh, people who uh, speak of the problem with the American education system, or it's it's really inappropriate. There is no American education system. So, because every state creates its own school system, uh, and because there was no federal right to an education for children with disabilities, every state pretty much did what it wanted to do. Uh, Some states had services for children with disabilities. Uh, Many states did not. Some states would educate a child uh, as long as it was not too expensive or inconvenient. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they would basically toss them out or institutionalize them, depending on the disability. So over time, advocates and parents uh, mobilized and pressured the federal government to pass the first, among the first uh, disability laws, which was Public Law 94 142, the All Handicapped Children's Act, which morphed into the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which was reauthorized the last time in 2004 as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the genesis of uh, special education. But again, because every state is different and every state is sovereign. Uh, every state has its own uh, way of interpreting uh, federal law. Uh, one of the things that's really important for folks to understand, and I've said this before, is that uh, <clears throat> people need to know the process that it's legislation, regulation, and litigation. Um, the laws are passed, their staff writes regulations uh, that are distributed, and then uh, through litigation, it's really what establishes what they mean and that's been one of the histories of uh, ideas with many other uh, things in our country. Um, it's through litigation that the law has been established. Uh, and uh, since we're talking about Jose P., that's one of the primary uh, issues here in New York City. And um, it's also important to realize the intent of the IDEA. The, the law intends for students to receive a free appropriate public education in order for them to be able to continue either with higher education, live independently, and find work. And that's the whole, in- the whole purpose of the act is really to have students continue with their education uh, and uh, find work and live independently. So how every student reaches that goal is different. Uh, so that's why the idea requires uh, free appropriate public education, requires evaluations that are appropriate to determine what the child's disabilities are and what the needs are, uh, it requires the related services to support them in helping to get there, and it requires the um, <clears throat> the parents to be able to participate uh, in the decision-making and it requires there to be a uh, due process where parents can address or redress some of the problems that they feel The system is not meeting for their children. What a lot of parents and again individuals aren't uh, necessarily aware of is that it's not a matter of a parent or a child receiving the best education possible, it's as appropriate. Uh, And again, through litigation, most recently a Supreme Court case, uh, it has to be meaningful. And again, uh, definitions are very slippery. What is meaningful for one child is not necessarily meaningful for another. So litigation is a very, uh, very important part of, uh, of the IDEA and due process for parents is very important. Um, that includes mediation, not just going to an impartial hearing. Sure. So one of the issues that led to the Jose P. litigation was that um, when the IDEA and, or Public Law 94-142 was first uh, uh, initiated, uh, systems were not really prepared to deal with the requirements of the system, uh, and that included identification of individuals with disabilities. Mm -hmm. It included assessment of individuals with disabilities. It included placement of children with disabilities in classes that were appropriate to meet their needs, and it included uh, the support services necessary for those children to be able to benefit from the education that they were going to be receiving. Uh, And again, it was very very difficult because as New York City is the largest uh, public school system in the nation uh, any Difficulties in any system is just multiplied exponentially by the size of New York City so that while you may have school districts up in the uh, heartland where they may have uh, 500 students in the district uh, back in um, the 70s you had district uh, in the Bronx, district 9, I mean district 7, uh, district 9 in the Bronx, uh, district 10. They have 30, 35,000 children in the, in the district. So just multiply the number of children by the complexity of all of these things. So the system was not set up to, to implement the law.
0: Right. So I'd like to go back to Jose P for a minute because you did mention the identification of children with disabilities that would include timely evaluation, um, placement, the provision of services, and even though that was established in regulation, there was no real way to enforce that, is that right?
1: That's that's true, and one of the the many complexities of, of Jose P is when people speak of Jose P, they're actually speaking of three different cases ah. that existed and they were uh, joined by the federal court. Uh, originally, There were three different lawsuits filed against the New York City Department of Education. One was filed by uh, the Cerebral Palsy Association of New York, UCP. One was filed by um, the um, coalition of organizations uh advocates for children, the Legal Services Corporation, and other corp- other entities, uh, Synergia, mm-hmm. uh, they filed a lawsuit, and um, ASPIDA, uh, or rather not ASPIDA, the, the Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund mm-hmm. filed the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. There were three different areas. The United Cerebral Palsy uh, lawsuit dealt with the children who were their clients, not receiving appropriate placement and services for their disabilities. Uh, Jose P., which became the lead plaintiff, the argument for Jose P., or the issue with Jose P., one of them was that uh, there were, the Board of Education was not doing timely evaluations to comply with the timelines of evaluating and placement, placement of a child. So you had the issue of Jose P. was about eva- timely evaluations. Um, with United Cerebral Palsy was, well, if you evaluated them on time, you didn't have any place to put them <laughs> that was appropriate to meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there was useless evaluating them on time. right? And the um, Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund brought uh, a class action lawsuit, uh, which was entitled, I um, can't quite remember the name of it, but anyway, well, the point of that lawsuit was that Um, for children who were bilingual, Spanish-speaking children in particular, uh, not only were they not being evaluated on time, not only you didn't have any placements or programs for bilingual children. So those three cases were consolidated into the lead case of Jose P. So those three cases became Jose P. So it was United Cerebral Palsy, it was uh, Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund, and it became, and Jose P. was a lead plaintiff in the mm-hmm. other case. So they were, uh, they were united into one case, consolidated, and that's where we get the Jose P. from.
0: Tell me more about Jose P. as an individual. What do you know?
1: Uh, Jose Perez, if I recall, uh, was originally a young man who was a client of Synergia, another agency in the city, a not-for-profit agency. And he had not, he was developmentally disabled and he had not been uh, evaluated and had not received the services that were necessary for him to be able to uh, to attend school and benefit from, from being in school. Uh, so he became the lead plaintiff and, and again, as a, in a class action lawsuit, uh, each of the entities had to go through a vetting process to find um, sufficient clients who met the requirements of the class in order to be certified as, as a class action uh, lawsuit. So that was the genesis of it, and as far as, uh, as Jose P went, I mean, he, my understanding is he really never benefited from services and he grew up and moved to Puerto Rico, where that's where I heard he still lives.
0: Can you imagine? Now, what year did all this take place, Miguel?
1: We're talking about 1979 uh, when all of this pretty much was filed and uh, Jose P. Uh, has been going on uh, for all these years. It has never gone to trial, um, but what has morphed from the, um, the filing of the litigation has been the special education system pretty much as we know it today in the sense of uh, notice requirements in the sense of bilingual special education teams, in the sense of bilingual classrooms, or at least a bilingual paraprofessional if they don't have a bilingual class- classroom for a child, um, the support services, um, and all sorts of things that have, uh, have evolved from the litigation. One of the things that the judge who was in charge of the litigation, uh, Eugene Nickerson, was very clear about when he started the process was that the case was not about quality of education. It was not about uh, the efficacy of classrooms and teaching methodology. It was procedural. It was evaluation and placements and teams to do evaluations and placements. And one of the things is that the Board of Education, especially early on, was never in any. Real compliance. The judge appointed special masters to review the, the the pleadings and to work with the plaintiffs and defendants to create a consensus resolutions. And when I was rummaging around in my basement, um, in preparation for the for my move to Texas, lo and behold, uh, I'm a hoarder, and I found all sorts of documents. Uh, this is uh, a, a report. Oh, here it is, Dircia. Was the uh, plain the name of the plaintiff for the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund? So it was uh, UCP Jose P. and Dir- Dircia mm-hmm. S. So I found the uh, one of the uh, reports from the special master, and this is in 1979. I wanna I wanted to read this because I found it really fascinating. I think it's kind of kind of germane. Now this started in 79. This is the order dated January 15, 1987. Um, and it says, regarding timelines, uh, it says, notably absent from the July plan or any steps designed to achieve timeliness as contemplated in paragraph 3 sub b and 12 of the judgment, and was noted in respect to an earlier plan, parenthesis, which posed the same timeline problems as here, close The entire plan essentially ignores the lack of timeliness in conducting evaluations which lay behind the court's order of July 17, 1986. Under the judgment, city defendants are required to evaluate each child referred within 30 days of written notification that the child may have a handicapping condition. Quote, to arrange a placement in an appropriate educational program and related services within 30 days of evaluation or 60 days of referral, whichever is shorter, end quote. The order specifically addresses itself to the compliance with these timelines. The current plan, however, simply matches up an estimated annual workload with an estimated system-wide capacity, so that at the end of a school year, all evaluations will theoretically be completed. It is in the opinion of the undersigned that timelines cannot be achieved merely by manipulating the numbers. (laughs) <laughs> the plaintiffs assert that the city defendant's refusal to even attempt to comply with the 30 60 day timeline provisions is contemptuous. The undersigned agrees. In the court's order dated January 15, 1987, Judge Nickerson stated, quote, the court is prepared to engage in more than benevolent yearnings to obtain compliance with the judgment entered so many years ago, end quote. It is the undersigned opinion that the time to take such steps has arrived." So (coughs) this is pretty much reflective of the compliance issues that the board uh, had always had, which was basically it was never in compliance. And therefore, um, plans and agreements and stipulations were entered into that didn't necessarily Address the um, the shortage of uh, of appropriate placement for children.
0: Right, and it and it never has. However, they came up with an idea of a remedy in cases where the regulation the regulatory timeline was exceeded. Right, uh, you're referring
1: to the the famous or infamous Nickerson
0: letter. Right. I am glad that you mentioned Judge Nickerson because everybody in New York City has heard of Nickerson letters, and most of them have no idea how they came to be.
1: Right. It was, it's, it's interesting. Again, you have to, un, you have to understand, and uh, it's really critical to understand the, the, dynam- the dynamics. Um, one of the things that I've said over the years, and then again, it's, it's difficult to, to come to grips, but the law doesn't require a parent to be happy. happiness is not a legal requirement right (laughs) Uh, so Judge Nickerson ordered as punishment for the board right not as a reward for the child Mm -hmm. that if the board was not in compliance with placing a child in an appropriate program within the timelines that child would be entitled to a non-public school placement for the school year in which the violation occurred Mm -hmm. And it was, again, as a punish- financial punishment for the Board of Education because they were not complying with the timelines and evaluations. So it had nothing to do with um, the, this child deserves to be in a private school, and deserve it had nothing to do with it. It's just an issue of, of a remedy. So that's the genesis of it, and it obviously created a lot of problems as well, because non-public schools have always got the right of refusal. Right. They don't have to accept the child simply because you have a, quote, Nickerson letter. And there are some schools who do not contract with the board. These are the, quote, non-approved private schools. Sure.
0: Yeah, there's all kinds of difficulties with the parent actually... Obtaining placement, Yeah, okay. implementing. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the reasons that most advocates and information specialists don't automatically go that way. There are so many difficulties involved with utilizing that letter and obtaining appropriate placement that it isn't always practical. Still, it may have been a kind of carrot and stick situation with the Department of Ed. Like you said, it's really a punishment. And knowing that the families were eligible for that under certain circumstances may have I don't know, did it, did it lead to them paying more attention to the process and trying to complete things within the regulations?
1: Well, this, this is the way that I, I've seen it and the way that I believe it, it works. Uh, and uh, I think it, it's, it's endemic, again, of the system and the difficulties with implementation of things. Um, if you're a, um, a person who's in charge of monitoring cases and where they stand on the calendar, And you see that you have a case that's coming up on the timeline where you're going to have to issue a Nickerson letter. Uh, First of all, my experience has been, and again, I'm generalizing, my experience has been that most parents aren't informed. They have a right to a, a, quote, Nickerson letter to begin with. Uh, It's a P1 letter, also referred to as a P1 letter. So it's not something that parents automatically know. Uh, And you throw in the situation of parents who may be language minority parents or less educated Mm -hmm. parents, and it gets much more complicated for them as well. But assuming that you're the the manager who's keeping an eye on the calendar, your first reaction is going to be to try to address those cases first. You're going to try to find placement for them now. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is an appropriate placement. Uh, It may be that it's a placement. Right. Uh, And I've run into cases where I actually had a chairperson of a CS, Committee for Special Education, tell me one time, well, the child is placed, and I said, the child is physically in the classroom, but you don't have a certified teacher in there. So, yes, <laughs> he's physically there, but no, he's not placed appropriately. So, there are all sorts of subtleties. I also had a chairperson tell me that it was a race for the body, and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if I get to him with a placement before you find a private school, I win. Right. And uh, this is pretty much the mentality that exists with a lot of people, not everyone. There's some very good people on the board. Uh, but there are some people who don't see uh, see it more as a uh, I win, you lose kind of situation instead of let's comply with what the regulations and the law require.
0: Right. That's a shame. And the timelines that are set up in the Department of Education standard operating and procedural manual are very tight, actually. Sometimes there's only a couple of times... A couple of weeks where you're guaranteed enrollment if you find a private school. So there's an awful lot of challenges involved.
1: Well, absolutely, and, and again, simply because you have a piece of paper that says um, you're entitled to a non-public school pra- placement at public expense, right, uh, doesn't mean that they're going to have a class that's appropriate. Doesn't mean they're going to have space available, and doesn't mean that it's necessarily an appropriate placement for your child, because again, a private school is not necessarily a panacea or a solution. You know, uh, children by and large who are in non-public schools are there because they have some pretty serious issues or they would be in a public school. Remember that the intent of the law is a free appropriate public education, not a private school placement. Uh, And I've always been a real believer that the system should provide the services and the classes that are necessary to educate children in the public schools. I'm not a believer in, in private schools simply because they exist.
0: Simply because they're private. Yeah, if, right.
1: they, if, if that's the only option that's available, uh, I just finished a case with uh, a severely involved uh, student, uh, an 18-year-old autistic uh, young lady, uh, and I got her into one of the non-approved, non-public schools. Uh, this is actually the third year that we're uh, going for funding. Uh, and one hundred and forty-nine thousand dollars a year is a mm. lot of money. It sure is. Um, but it's appropriate for her. Right. And it has nothing to do with the fact that uh, I don't feel that you know she doesn't deserve it. That's what the law requires. They cannot provide an appropriate program for the child, and the child deserves what they need.
0: Now, most people really can't understand, including yours truly, why a case like <laughs> this would just lead to a stipulation which was renewed occasionally, amended occasionally. How is it that a case like this just remains a stipulation indefinitely?
1: You're speaking about P specifically. Yes. Um, litigation is tremendously expensive. Uh, it's tremendously adversarial. And it's tremendously uh, stressful for all the parties. And it doesn't necessarily lead to a positive outcome. That's why, particularly in education cases, uh, uh, judges and, and the courts are very reluctant to impose their, quote, judgment on education issues. They defer to um, to the specialists in the, in the area. That doesn't mean that they will not work on uh, procedural issues. It's very different from saying, you have to do this within 60 days or 30 days. Specifically, what you provide in the classroom is not within my purview as a judge. So that's why these cases continue for such a long time. And uh, it's, it's very cumbersome. It's very expensive. And the reality is nobody, nobody walks away with a full loaf, and nobody walks away happy. So but again, sti- happiness is not a legal requirement. Exactly.
0: So the stipulation was the right outcome, in your opinion? It was an
1: outcome. Whether it was a <laughs> right outcome. Exactly. It really depends. Uh, you know, where where you stand depends on where you sit at the table.
0: Well, how has it worked?
1: For some children, it's worked well. For other children, said, huh, ch- other children hasn't. I mean, this is. You know, you it's it's not um, it's not clear cut, black and white, good and bad. You know, just like there are a lot of good people in the system, collectively the system leaves a lot to be desired. Um, and, uh, you know, when people used to argue back 20 years ago, well, we, wanna, we want <clears throat> special education students to have the same opportunity and, out- and outcomes as typical children. And you looked at the typical children graduation rate, <laughs> which was below 50%. Right. That's not such a great thing. But when you compare it to 5% of children with disabilities graduating, right. that's wonderful. So does it work? For some children it does, for other children it doesn't. And this is again part of the problem is that it's there is no one solution. So the court has tried to do the best that it can. People have tried to um, implement things as well, I'm not gonna say as best as they can, but they've tried to they've tried they try to comply and, and it and right. it's very difficult.
0: Now, I believe that part of the agreement of the stipulation was that the Department of Ed did create their standard operating and procedural manual, and there is one now, and it contains a lot of information about remedies when there are violations of the timeline. I know that they also requested reports to track compliance, and that has been another enormous problem. Even up to the present day, reporting the results of special education referrals are almost impossible under the new special education student information system right. that the department of education uses so how can you enforce this stipulation is
1: that a rhetorical question or you really want an <laughs> answer
0: <laughs> well uh, if anyone can answer it you can
1: well i, I think and i'm going i'm going to uh, kind of editorialize a little bit on uh, <laughs> my own my own <clears throat> my own philosophy on this and it, it, it's kind of the following and it's like like I, what I believe in, in raising children. Um, if you tell a child that if they don't do A, you're going to do B, and they do A and you don't do B, mm-hmm. then you're no longer have any credibility. Um, now, you have to be very careful of what you tell a child the consequences are going to be. Sure. Um, because then if you don't, comply again you lose credibility so one of the I think one of the problems has always been and again this is just my own take and it's not a you know not anybody else's that I know of part of the problem is that there is no individual accountability for not doing what you're supposed to do so that if you don't do what you're supposed to do or you're required to do and there is no consequences for you there is no reason for you not to continue to do it Um, But that's a slippery slope because if you punish a system, for example, by withholding funds from the system, then arguably you're denying children who need the funds in order to receive services the opportunity to receive services because you're punishing the system. Uh, I would really like to see there to be some type of of consequences for the individuals who don't inform parents of what their rights are, that don't uh, comply with what the, the reporting mechanisms are, um, that there has to be some personal accountability until there is, uh, not, I don't believe anything going to going to right. change. So You're gonna have individual successes, right? but overall the system is gonna be what it
0: is. And there's never been any such individual accountability. No, never. Isn't that terrible? Well, some some of us think it is. <laughs> some of us would say, "Well, that's the way it is." I mean, yeah. Now, mayoral control was just extended by two years. How important is it?
1: I think a lot of it has to do also with the history, and and again, it's. Uh, I, I was telling a friend of mine the other day that if you live long enough, you become an institutional memory. <laughs> um, you know, I was around when, the. Special education classes were were conservation classes, were um, before they became modified instructional classes. And uh, the community school districts were quote in charge of the individual programs in their districts. And the the shift from community school district to mayoral control really came about in many ways because of the lack of uh, accountability and success in uh, educating children uh, particularly those with disabilities in the local districts uh, many of them were um, you know dens of patronage and uh, and but again I, I I don't want to malign New york but it, <laughs> it is a home of bus boss, boss tweed so it wasn't surprising uh so that was a large reason for the shift to mayoral control uh, mayoral controls uh well, let me step back a little bit. Also, the old Board of Education uh, had representatives from each of the borough presidents when much, back when they were much mm-hmm. stronger, uh, and the the mayor had appointees, uh, and it was a lot of uh, negotiation and uh, trade-offs. Uh, you give me a junior high school, I'll give you a high school. Uh, the Catholic uh, the archdiocese had its own representative on the board as well, who was sympathetic to the to the uh, non. To the Catholic schools and non-public schools, so it was. It was interesting. It were very interesting times. Uh, Mayor's control was supposed to do away with that, um, and under Mayor, former Mayor Bloomberg, uh, he did a lot to descent, to recentralize and change the structure of the system. But one of the things that I've again, I've and this is just my observation, um, the education system is like this gigantic amoeba. Mm-hmm. You push it, and it changes shape, but it's still what it is. (laughs) Uh, So you can restructure. You can have different lines of command. You can have different uh, uh, titles and networks and all sorts of things. And the bottom line is what's going on in the classroom. And that's really where we have to say, um, we no longer have special ed supervisors in the the school. Uh, The principal is supposed to be in charge of all the children in the school. Many principals have no interest in children with uh, disabilities, or that's not their focus. Uh, many, it's an issue of budgets, and issue of costs. Who, who, you know, you have a limited amount of uh, of resources, and who, gets what? Uh, do you take a, a music program from the gifted and talented to give it to children who uh, are cognitively impaired are not going to uh, reach uh, grade level in reading? Or do you spend money on? Books for those children, I mean, it's, it's uh, interesting.
0: On balance, have we made progress over the years?
1: It's much better organized. Um, on balance, um, again, I've been doing this for 40 years, uh, and there have been some, some changes and some uh, changes in philosophies and some in attitudes. But again, uh, there were successful kids 40 years ago. There are successful kids now. There are kids who were totally inappropriately placed and educated, or elect- not educated, forty years ago, and there's still some now. Uh, you know, it's one of those questions that really doesn't have a specific answer. It's it's how it works for each individual child.
0: Right. And the more things change, the more they things- remain the same. <laughs> yes, sir? Thank you, Miguel. Thank you so much. Oh, really you're welcome. It.
1: It, it was it was fun. Hopefully, this is this didn't turn out. Uh, too pessimistic. But but then again, uh, that's my nature, so (laughs) you're welcome.
0: Thank you.